everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I had kind of an odd interaction the other day. So, you know that game you play at, like, slumber parties or on Halloween where you turn out all the lights and then you tell a spooky story about a scary witch and then you pass around, like, a little dish of peeled grapes and have everybody feel them and say, and those were the witch's eyeballs, and everybody's like, ah, gross! And then you pass around a dish of cold spaghetti noodles and are like, and that was the witch's hair. And everybody's like, ah, that witch should have taken better care of her hair, I guess. And then you pass around a plate of dry toast and are like, and this was the witch's skin because she didn't exfoliate. And that isn't really one of them, but I couldn't think of a third one. And when you think about it, it's not really any weirder than the hair thing. And there couldn't have just been two of those, right? Anyway, that's a pretty messed up game. I mean, if you're sitting around with Tupperware full of that lady's body parts, I don't think she's the spooky one. Anyway, so the other day I was over at my friend's house, and we were trying to decide what to eat, and he said, I think I got some cold spaghetti noodles in the fridge, and I said, oh, that's the witch's hair. And he said, what? And I said, you know, the witch's hair? And he said, oh, Yeah, I guess. So I'm not entirely sure what happened there. I'll tell you what definitely didn't happen. He understood my reference and gave it the polite but dismissive laughter that it deserved. What I think happened was that my friend thought I was using some hip new slang that means that's rad. You know, like, that's the bee's knees or that's the cat's pajamas. You know, hip and current slang phrases like that. That's the witch's hair. So, on the one hand, I'm kind of flattered that my friend thinks that I know cool, hip, new slang phrases, which I clearly don't. But on the other hand, I'm a little bit insulted that my friend so dramatically overestimated my enthusiasm for cold spaghetti noodles. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Osvaldo Ayola. When Steve Strange was in medical school, they'd have him transport samples like blood and stool. You need steady hands if you're not going to drop piss, be a good surgeon, or type a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Osvaldo. Defenders, number 69. Nice. March, 1979. The Anything Man. Written by Jim Shooter and Mary Jo Duffy. Drawed by Herb Trempe. Inked by Al Milgram. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Ben Sean. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. The Incredible Hulk. Valkyrie. Hellcat. And Nighthawk. Previously in The Defenders. In their earliest adventure as an official non-team, the Defenders battled an evil computer named the Omegatron, which intended to blow up the planet. The Omegatron was created by a jerk named Yandroth the Scientist Supreme, who had scuffled unsuccessfully with Stephen Strange. 
The superlatively suffix science scumbag used a potent combination of nonsense science and nonsense magic to construct his doomsday device, which he then stashed at his summer home in Maine. Then he got hit by a bus and died. Hooray! Unfortunately, the Omegatron was designed to detonate in the event of its divisor's demise, so Steve, Namor, and the Hulk headed to the rocky coast of the Vacation State to confront the cataclysm-creating computer. Hulk and Namor tried punching the Omegatron, but that only made it stronger, so Steve sorcerously stuffed it in a time bubble, and everybody went home. A few months later, the Omegatron freed itself from its temporal bondage and turned itself into a giant robot. So the gang headed back to Maine, and Valkyrie chopped its head off. God zooks! How did our heroes dispose of the wreckage of this high-tech Armageddon-inducing android? Will the Omegatron once again rear its evil head? And what powerful new threat could compel Doctor Strange to once again team up with our titular non-team? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so they didn't. They just kind of left the decapitated robot where it was on a beach in Maine. The Omegatron's evil head doesn't really need much rearing. It's with the rest of the Omegatron sitting on that beach in Maine. And a tennis enthusiast from Dover, New Hampshire. Doctor Strange and Nighthawk walk along a secluded beach in Maine and poke at some robot parts that are lying around. Kyle's like, um, Steve, what's up with this broken robot, and why did we come here? Steve responds by expositing pretty much all the stuff I went over in the previously in the Defenders bit. Wait a minute. These guys flew all the way from New York together, and the purpose of their journey didn't come up at all during the trip? Man, that sounds like an awkward commute. Did Steve just pop in his earbuds of Agamotto? and listen to some sorceress podcast the whole time? Rude. Also, if Steve pitched the trip by saying, Kyle, I need you to come with me to a secluded beach in Maine. Never mind why, I'll explain when we get there. I want it to be a surprise. I wonder if Kyle's relieved or disappointed that Steve didn't propose to him. Maybe a little of both. Anyway, Steve goes on to explain that after Val de-headified the Omegatron, he slapped an invisibility spell over the vanquished robot, but now the spell seems to have worn off, and there are some footprints near the now-visible detritus. That's not a great sign. What's worse, the power meter that Steve finds on a washed-up piece of the Omegatron has started to fluctuate slightly, implying that the Doomsday device might not be entirely inert. Uh-oh. Appropriately alarmed by this new development, Doctor Strange and Nighthawk begin their long, silent journey home. Meanwhile, in scenic Dover, New Hampshire, a young couple is engaged in a spirited game of tennis. Idealistic veterinarian Jeff Colt has never won a match against his girlfriend Hillary before, but his fortune seems to be turning. Hillary's impressed. After Jeff's victory, she asks him if he's been practicing, but Jeff replies no, he just seems strangely energized after his recent vacation in Maine. Hmm. After the match, the two return to the bizarrely ostentatious animal shelter that Jeff works at and for which Hillary has been hosting fundraisers. They see that a strange car is parked outside and that the door of the clinic is ajar. Jeff rushes in to investigate and finds a bunch of gangster-looking guys robbing the joint. He single-handedly beats up the would-be burglars. Hooray! Then one of them shoots him in the tummy but the bullet just bounces off him with no apparent effect. 
Hmm. Jeff is understandably confused by this turn of events, but has little time to reflect on its possible ramifications. The thwarted villains flee, and when Jeff rushes outside after them, he sees that they're about to run over Hillary. Alarmed, the uncannily invigorated tennis enthusiast dashes across the clinic's private cul-de-sac, leaps over its ornate fountain, and places himself in the path of the oncoming vehicle. The car slams into his torso and is totaled, leaving Jeff and Hillary unharmed. Interesting. Also, that is one fancy-ass animal shelter. The young couple is delighted by their good fortune, and while Hillary is oddly uncurious about the strange events that have just transpired, Jeff silently resolves to further explore the extent of his new abilities. On a perhaps not unrelated note, somewhere in Maine, the needle on the Omegatron's power meter begins to twitch. Meanwhile, in Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious, Steve summons the Defenders and informs them that some weird giant robot-related shit might go down soon, and they'd better be ready. The gang is like, Oh, okay, good to know. You're a little vague on the details, but at least you didn't make us fly all the way to Maine to tell us that. Kyle is strangely silent. Back in New Hampshire, Jeff has become a bit of a local celebrity after news of his recent exploits has gotten out. He's stoked about the extra exposure for the clinic, but is a little bit annoyed that the only tangible manifestation of his newfound abilities is that he's really good at tennis now. Apparently he's been playing a lot too, because it's two days later and he's still wearing the same shorts and sweatbands. Spoiling for a way to test his new powers, Jeff reads in the local paper that a boat race is scheduled for the next day, and thinks to himself, Hmm, a boat race. Boat races have rewards. Sometimes those rewards are money. Criminals like money. I bet criminals will try to rob the marina tonight. Great deductive reasoning, Jeff. The day you decided to dedicate your life to tennis and animal medicine... The world lost a brilliant detective. That night, Jeff shows up at the Dover Marina in his signature tennis togs and finds that his wild assumption was correct. A group of five gangster-looking dudes, straight from central casting, are trying to bust into the boathouse's safe. Okay, maybe not straight from central casting. More like five gangster-looking dudes from five decentralized casting agencies from five different community theater groups. Community theaters use casting agents, right? Anyway, whoever it was that cast these guys definitely drove home the point that they needed to bring their own props, because they all have guns, and they all decide to shoot those guns at Jeff. Once again, the bullets bounce right off an elated Jeff, who revels in his newfound might. He beats up three of the crooks immediately, but two escape and try to run him over in a stolen boat. When the boat proves to be as ineffectual a weapon as the bullets were, the thieves attempt to use it to make their escape. The fleeing fugitives speed across the water, but soon find themselves being pursued by a supercharged tennis ace who swims after them at an alarming speed. Back at the sanctum, Steve senses a great disturbance in the force or whatever. He hones in on the new energy source that is being unleashed and deploys the defenders to confront it. Hulk, Nighthawk, Val, and Hellcat catch up with Jeff Colt and find that he is caught up with the crooks on a beach somewhere and beaten them up pretty badly. Jeff initially assumes that our heroes are there to ask him to join up, but he's quickly disabused of that notion. Kyle is like, Sorry Jeff, but we've had some bad luck with recruitment drives in the past. Also, if you keep using your powers, there's a pretty decent chance the planet's gonna blow up. We think an evil robot in Maine is using you as a cat's paw to generate energy. 
In fact, just to be on the safe side, it's probably best if you don't even play tennis anymore. Jeff doesn't take this news too well. Drunk with power and probably enraged at the possibility of giving up his beloved racket sports, he challenges the Hulk to a fight. The Hulk is eager to take Jeff up on his offer, but Valkyrie's like, Know the Hulk. Remember how Steve told us off-panel that if you tried to fight this guy, it might trigger the end of the world? Well, you'd better sit this one out. You know, in retrospect, sending you along on this mission in the first place doesn't make a ton of sense, does it? Especially given your temperament. Man, a few more executive decisions like that and we might have to take back Kyle's world's worst boss mug and give it to Steve. With the Hulk sulking a few yards away with his back to the action, Jeff attacks and defeats Hellcat, then Kyle, then Valkyrie. With each battle, Steve senses the Omegatron getting closer to turning itself back on. After defeating Valkyrie, Jeff turns his attention to Aragorn, smacking the flying horse in the face with a stick. What the fuck, Jeff? I thought horse cudgeling was frowned upon in veterinarian circles. Seeing his friend Aragorn be so badly abused is more than the Hulk can bear. The Jade Giant tosses a huge boulder at Jeff's head and moves in to attack. At the last minute, Astral Steve shows up and depowers the Hulk to keep Jeff from absorbing the kinetic energy from the Green Goliath's eminent onslaught. So the suddenly savage Servan Volier starts whooping the shit out of a confused and helpless Bruce Banner. Damn it, Jeff! Then, as if this issue hadn't taken enough surprising turns, Kyle has a clever idea. What?! The affluent avian aficionado punches Jeff and then flies off, luring the aggressive overpowered athlete to a deserted island in the middle of the ocean. Once safely isolated, Kyle just allows Jeff to beat the shit out of him for a page or so, refusing to fight back. Eventually, Jeff expends all of his mystic energy wailing on Nighthawk and returns to normal. He demands that Kyle attack him so that he can recharge, but Kyle declines to do so, instead taking to the air and hovering above the island out of Jeff's reach. Nighthawk addresses his now helpless former phone as like, Well, hope you like this island, cause you live here now. I'll come back later and drop off some food and build you a house, but we can't have you accidentally blowing up the planet every time you want to fight mobsters. And living in a notorious hotbed of crime like Dover, New Hampshire, it would only be a matter of time before you got shot again and this whole rigmarole started up again. Sorry. A suddenly contrite Jeff Colt is like, Shit, really? Look, I never really wanted to have superpowers in the first place. It was just kind of nice to win a tennis game against my girlfriend, and I, I got carried away. Could you just maybe take these powers away, and then I won't destroy the Earth? At this point, Steve shows up, and is like, Oh yes, I can totally do that. What a good idea. And with that, the Sorcerer Supreme mystically yoinks away Jeff's connection with the Omegatron. Problem solved. Hooray! Now go pick up your giant robot trash, Steve, before some beachcombing squash player from, I don't know, Tuftonborough starts another Ragnarok. Damn litterbug sorcerers ruining our nation's beaches. And as eagle-brained listeners will remember, my good-for-many-things brother is trapped on Earth 2 due to the various whatnot of the crisis and all. It is my hope that he'll be back soon, but in the meantime, he seems to be enjoying himself there. So, joining us via, I don't know, probably a portal or something, is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how's it going? 
Hey, it is going pretty good. How are you going? Doing okay. Been an interesting uh, few days. Yeah? Nah, it hasn't. <laughs> I was lying. Ah, okay. I was ready for a good story. No, no, I don't have any of those. But I'll tell you what I do have. Hmm. A mail call. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I checked the P.O. box the other day, and we had a few things in there. We had a couple of postcards from our friend Lucas in Australia, and those are very nice. I don't have those in front of me, but I'll share them with you later. Cool. We also have a package, which I don't know what's in it. Oh my gosh. Let's see what it contains. Okay, one of the things that it contains is a letter... Dear Hub and Corey, hope you are doing well. Your show is great, and I wanted to send along some chili powder. I usually make a batch over the holidays as it keeps for about a year to 18 months, and since I am an inconsistent person, each batch turns out a little different. This one is pretty spicy compared to last year's, which had more of a smoky quality. Anyway, your show is great. I have had some struggles the last few years, and your show has always brightened my day. One thing, though, Hub, the way you keep explaining that you are a human man from Earth makes me think that you might not be a human man from Earth. Well, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> then again, I've noticed that Corey rarely, if ever, says that he is a human man from Earth, so now I don't know what to think. Have a great day, if that's what you're looking for in a day, and keep up the good work, Brian. Wow. That is so considerate. Oh, wow. There are, in fact, two full jars of chili powder here. So uh, there'll be one waiting for you when you get back from, what are you, on Earth uh, 4? They keep changing it on me. <laughs> it's like, uh -huh. I, I'm not sure to be honest. Well, let's call it Earth 69, because it seems like it's nice there. <laughs> and also, we are on the 69th issue of The Defenders. What a coincidence. So, what did you think of this 69th issue of The Defenders? Ah, uh, man, I'm still thinking about that chili powder when I get home. Let's see, shifting gears. I thought this was a fun comic book. Yeah, I did too. It was kind of a nothing of a comic book. Definitely a fill-in issue. I agree it was kind of a nothing fill-in issue, but I really appreciated the introduction of what I was calling Tennis Man, and I guess they're calling Anything Man. Yeah, Anything Man is a really lazy name. I was coming up with other names for him also. Uh, one of them was Captain Whatever, and then some more uh, tennis-themed ones, like maybe he could call himself Top Spin or Overhand Smash or Stefan Edberg. Wow. I think that last one might be taken. That's like three more tennis things than I know about, but those all sound pretty cool. Well, I used to play tennis in high school. And the first thing they teach you is names you can come up with if you ever end up with tennis-themed superpowers. Oh, man, I missed out, and that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a crash course. Uh, I never did end up learning any topspin, which uh, was a, a bit of a detriment to my game. But, you know, I learned that I could call myself topspin, so it's a trade-off. Fair enough. I like also that the introduction of this character does touch on sometimes what we've gone over in the Beholder Be Gone segments, where some of those questions that we wrestle with surround ideas of, you know, superpowers and what we would be willing to endure to attain them or keep them. Yeah. And it turns out destroying the entire planet is not something he is willing to do. 
Yeah, he didn't really care about that because he didn't know that was a consequence, but he definitely didn't want to be stuck on a island living in a shelter built by Nighthawk for the rest of his life. That's true. I wonder what factor the fact that the shelter would be built by Nighthawk played in that decision. I mean, he doesn't know Nighthawk very well, so I I think that might be more of a detriment to me than it would be to him. Oh yeah, I was projecting for sure. Although it's possible that between panels, uh, Nighthawk showed him pictures of that sign he painted and hung above the house. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I think he was pretty proud of himself for that, so it really wouldn't surprise me if he just carried a a few snapshots of that around with him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like we talked about it, it's a fill-in issue. It's co-plotted by Jim Shooter and Mary Jo Duffy and scripted by Mary Jo Duffy. And I like her work a lot. She's somebody who we've mentioned before, I think mostly through her submissions to the letters page. And I'm familiar with her as a writer on Power Man and Iron Fist. And she did the Fallen Angels miniseries, which was an X-Men tie-in in the 80s. And I really like the way that she writes. I think this is an okay example of it, but this has, I think, a lot of Jim Shooter's fingerprints on it. He came up writing for DC in the 60s, and this issue has a very goofy Silver Age feel to it. Yeah, I appreciated that. I felt like it was more fun in a way, the banter, for example, between Patty and everybody else. Yeah, mostly with uh, Captain whatever. Mm -hmm. Tennis man. Yeah, so I I thought that was pretty fun. And it's also nice to see Al Milgram on inks. He's been the editor of this series for a while, and I'm mostly familiar with him as an inker, although I know he's done a lot of writing and a lot of editing. But it was good to see him do that, although once again, that does kind of lend credence to the theory that this was an all-hands-on-deck, everybody-pitch-in situation because we've got to make a deadline. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought for the most part, the artwork was fairly enjoyable. There were a few issues that I had, and I I didn't know if those would be more attributable to Milgram for the inks or or Trempe for the pencils. Um, Do you know if, if the same team that did the interior did the cover as well? So the pencils on the cover are still Herb Trempe, but the inker, I believe, is Bob Layton for the cover. Okay, that that makes sense to me because one of the little issues that I had with it was the size of Valkyrie's head in proportion to her body. On the cover or inside? Uh, both. So on the cover, it looks like her head is too big. Hmm. And then also on the inside, um, the best example is on page 23, where she was kind of a bubble-headed appearance. On 23? Oh, yeah, in the first panel. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just a matter of perspective, like she's leaning forward in that. But it, it is possible that she's got a Kevin Costner syndrome going on where her head is just too big for her body, but in a way that you don't notice at first. And then once you notice it, it's all you can notice about them. <laughs> I have not. I don't think you've shared that with me before. Well, I was trying to protect you, Corey. I wanted you to be able to enjoy the postman on its own merits, but... Oh, man. Welcome to my world. Waterworld will never be the same. (laughs) What have you done? I'm so sorry. Good to see Doctor Strange back. Yeah, although that is another thing that it made me kind of wonder how long this story had been sitting on the shelf. Because it did to an extent seem like the Defenders cast was largely interchangeable in the plot. And it was maybe written at a time when Steve would have been an actual member of the team. 
That being said, I did enjoy seeing him. I don't think it's necessarily the steviest Steve that we've seen, but yeah, nice to see that old Eye of Agamotto bobbling around. Mm -hmm. Another thing that might have had a touch of familiarity, to you at least, the setting of this comic book. Yeah, back on the eastern seaboard, and uh, I guess that's where they originally had their run-in with Omegatron. Well, their initial run-in with the Omegatron was in upstate Maine, but I am specifically talking about the town that Jeff and Hillary live in, which is, I believe, Dover, New Hampshire. I was wondering about that. I saw that uh, Dover was on the uh, the newspaper and uh, somewhere else in there. I just assumed that they were um, saying that was in Maine also. But no, because he took a business trip to Maine. That's where he got the Omegatron mojo. Yeah, it opens up. He says he just got back from Maine, but it is mentioned that it takes place in New England because previous to that, I had been thinking they were in Dover, Delaware, maybe. And I did a tiny bit of research. I think it has to be New Hampshire because there is a Dover, Massachusetts, but it's landlocked. So you can't have the marina there. Vermont is landlocked. There's not a Dover, Rhode Island. If we consider Connecticut part of New England, which I understand some people do, uh, there's not a Dover, Connecticut. So through process of elimination, I think that's your old stomping grounds. You actually lived in Dover, New Hampshire for a while. Dover. I did. Yeah. Far out. I don't remember that really nice uh, veterinary center with the cul-de-sac and the, the fountain outside, though. Really? I was wondering, I was going to ask you about that, because that definitely struck me too. That seems to be a terribly managed veterinary clinic. Yeah, they blew their budget on the landscaping and the facade for sure. But yeah, no, Dover is a great town, uh, picturesque, and uh, really pretty charming. But yeah, alas, no veterinary center with the fountain that I'm aware of. That is a shame, I guess. Although, I mean, if they're needing to hold the fundraiser and they've got the fancy fountain and like the private cul-de-sac, I don't know. I think they're just budgeting their money poorly. Mm -hmm. You also see that they just have loose animals out on the lawn that don't appear to be fenced in in any way. That seems dangerous, even if it is a private cul-de-sac. We see that at least some people are speeding around on that thing. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah, looking at the landscaping and the way that they choose to spend their money, it does make sense that they would need to have giant billboards advertising their big fundraising events. And it also makes sense why thieves would assume they have a lot of money. Yeah, there's literally money signs drawn all over the billboard that is about the same size as the building <laughs> that it's <laughs> next to. But that is also on their private property. So you're only advertising to the people that are already visiting you. Yeah, I, I think that Jeff and Hillary, their hearts are in the right place. It's just more of a, a passion project for them than maybe something that they like went to school for or otherwise have expertise with. <laughs> They're also making a fair amount of assumptions about their fundraising base. It's not a thing that I've heard before that the only people who care about animal rights are poor people with large families. Or the, the one eccentric old lady in town. <laughs> Is it, was there just the one, or was it just in general, as a class of people? Hey, you lived in Dover. You'd know better than I. Was there the one lady who was just super big on philanthropic donations to animal shelters? Gosh, I'm embarrassed to say that during my time there, I was kind of in my little social bubble, and I didn't really branch out too much. So, I, I don't know. 
she never came into the firehouse when you were bussing tables there? Oh, there might have been some eccentric older ladies there when I was bussing tables. I think of that place as being pretty fancy, was it? It was, I think, for, uh, you know, for the area. Oh, gosh, I may have actually spilled water on one of the targets of their fundraising. It's like my first, yeah, I think that was my first front of the house job in the service industry. And I didn't realize that if you put ice water into glasses that had just come out of the dishwasher or the sanitizer that they would break. Oh, yeah. And it was sort of one of those things that, I don't know, have you had this experience where as you are doing something, you're thinking, no, (laughs) but you're like already (laughs) committed to the course of action? (laughs) That was basically how that went down. Oh, dear. I hope that didn't cause the veterinary clinic any, uh, any donations. Oh, no, it was fine. There was just some minor breakage in a wet tablecloth and a startled but really gracious, um, how do you call it? Uh, Dowager Countess? A gracious response to my error. Nobody got terribly wet. There was not large pieces of glass everywhere, but it was still pretty startling. I would imagine so. Back to the topic of the anything man. Do you think that in his mind, his newfound superpowers are caused by his tennis outfit? Because we see that he just keeps wearing that. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's logical. He's really into having those powers, and he knows that they're only going to come out in um, times of competition. But he's probably superstitious in some sense that it's related to his costume. That said, Hillary doesn't seem to change out of her tennis duds either. Well, maybe those are the only clothes that they have because they spend the rest on uh, fountains. Yeah, it could just be they poured all their financial resources into the vet clinic. Hmm. And to making a outsized, disproportionate tennis court for themselves to play on. If that is their private court, that may have been the public courts. I'm not sure. But either way, they were way too wide. And even given that, the shot that Jeff wins his game against her on was clearly going out of bounds. So I think maybe she was just trying to boost his confidence and it went too far and gave him superpowers. Like in a Mike's Secret Stuff scenario. Oh my God. Can you imagine if it worked like that? The world would be overrun with like a child superpowers gone awry. (laughs) A world run by emotionally immature, powerful men brimming with unearned confidence? Is such a world even possible? It could be. You know, maybe one of them or both of them inherited an estate from a wealthy family member and decided to churn it to philanthropic ends, but then did a bad job and squandered the money, which is why they've got the uh, the fountain and the tennis court. I think that is almost certainly what happened. There we go. In addition to being much more affluent than I remember it being, I remember Dover being mostly a working class town, but we see that this has the, the big marina, which I guess must be Little Bay Marina, probably, unless it's on the Piscataqua. We see that it is also a hotbed of crime in a way that I hadn't remembered. Yeah, those guys look like um, serious gangsters with the suits and everything. I mean, kind of serious gangsters. Some of them are wearing suits. They have that, like, 80s horror movie street gang thing going where (laughs) they're a surprisingly diverse group for a gang. Mm -hmm. Like, 
not just ethnically, although that also, especially for Dover, New Hampshire, but in terms of their styles and interests. It's not quite a full-on, like, late Friday the 13th era street gang where you'd have, like, the new wave guy and the punk guy and the break dancer, but it's not that far off. They've got really different looks going for themselves. Mm -hmm. But they do all seem like they're trying to look like gangsters, so I can appreciate that. Uh, One knucklehead in the beginning is wearing his sunglasses and his hat inside. Just trying to look cool. Mm -hmm. Trying to look cool, but I don't think it goes very well. No, they don't seem like the most competent gang of thieves, I must say. The guy who is breaking into the safe, we see he spills his toolbox, and it's just full of wrenches. I don't think that's safe-cracking equipment. No. This is the same guy that um, his strategy is to drive his motorboat into the pier. Yeah. (laughs) To solve things. That's such a bad idea. Yeah, I was really curious about that. So they clearly pick up on the fact that this guy seems to have superpowers and be a superhero. He's been beating them all up, so they escape in their boat. They are on their way totally clear of him, and then he decides to turn the boat around and ram him on the pier at full speed. I wasn't entirely sure how they ended up having their boat be fine and getting on the open water after that, which apparently they did, but it just seemed like a bad plan to begin with. Why not just vamoose at that point? Yeah, very confusing. Maybe he wanted to go back and get his wrenches. <laughs> I think they fell in the water when he was jumping into the boat. The other thing that's kind of a, a loose end that I know by now that shouldn't bother me, but those bad guys, when the boat crash lands on the island or tennis man picks it up and throws it on the island or whatever happens, we see that they are both passed out on the sand and then they just mm-hmm. are left there. <laughs> so like, well, good enough. That's how we deal with crime in Dover. As long as he's hurt, that's the important thing. He's paid his debt to society in punches. And he'll have to swim back to uh, the mainland. Yeah, oh, were they on an island? I thought they were just on the coastline, and then Nighthawk takes him out to an island. Oh, that could be. They got a ways to go, though. They got to get past, what, Newington and Portsmouth and Kittery? Like, that's a pretty long stretch of the, the river there to get out onto the open water. It is, but on the plus side, they get to stop at Yokins and have some delicious fried fish. <laughs> uh, that was one of my early experiences of expectations not, <laughs> you know, measuring up. I used to I'd pester my folks all the time because that sign with the whale was so cool. It was so enticing. It was like a savory fudgy the whale. Yeah, but uh, it's just regular fried stuff. I think I had the same experience, but I didn't learn my lesson because I always still wanted to go there because it was just such a good sign. Was there like a neon animation of his tail splashing or water splashing or something? I seem to remember the sign had some kind of like element of of movement to it. Yeah, I don't remember for sure. Hey, Jokins, if you want to give us some money, we'll say nicer things about your fried food. Yeah, give us some money. Come on! We won't rob your veterinary center. Well, Corey won't. I reserve (laughs) judgment. Yeah. Did you see the size of the fountain they got at that place? Whoa. Do you remember the Yandroth Omegatron story that this is a revisiting of? Yeah, well, I remember that we read it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, some stuff happened. I don't remember it resolving with Valkyrie decapitating it and Steve leaving it on the beach under a mystical tarp. <laughs> that was exactly what I thought of it as. I actually have that written down, mystical tarp. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> We're on the same page. That is too funny. I do remember Val cutting its head off before it could finish saying its name, which would trigger the end of the world. But yeah, the fact that Steve just left it lying around there, I mean, he probably did. I don't think they showed him doing the cleanup. But yeah, just like sweeping it up under a mystical tarp and just being like, somebody else's problem now. His whole treatment of that thing is, oh, shit. I might need to change my sucker category. I just realized that, like, the whole deal with him kind of washing his hands of it was just like, I don't understand how this works. <laughs> right? And so I don't want to, he doesn't want to risk restarting it or something. So he's just like, I'll just leave it on the beach. Yeah. Main's problem now. Not cool, Steve. I bet he meant to come back later, you know, put on another fancy suit and show up at an at a farmer's house. But, you know, he got busy. Yep, I just had some things I had to do. I mean, that's literally his excuse, right? It was like, I, I was busy. Yeah, and there is perhaps the most vague, perfunctory editor asterisk there when he says, I got busy doing other things. Uh, it just says, see Doctor Strange's comic book series. Like, yeah, I would assume that is filled with him doing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know, that was... Uh... And some clever marketing, actually. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> now I gotta read them all. We mentioned the Dover Herald earlier, which is the newspaper that has the headline of Jeff foiling a robbery. And the vagueness of the editorial note about Steve's recent adventures, coupled with just the vagueness of the details about Yandroth and the Omegatron adventures, really put a different spin on what was a fun touch of the Dover Herald edition that we see depicted. Oh, no, no reference. <laughs> yeah, special no reference issue. <laughs> I almost looked that up on the internet to see if that was a thing, but then I forgot. Have you ever heard that before? No, it seems like a fun place to work, I guess. Doesn't make me want to read that newspaper. <laughs> it's it's kind of like saying for entertainment purposes only or something. Is that what it means? Yeah, there was something recently. I forget what it was. Somebody posted it on the internet, but there was a paper someone had written in which they cited one of the references as it came to me in a dream. Wow, that is a good one. That is a power play. And, I mean, even that is more of a reference than, apparently, the Dover Herald needs for their sources. It's a special no-reference edition, too, so I guess normally they do have some references. I guess reference is different than sources. Like, maybe they do have sources. It's just all vague details. Or do you think that they just didn't used to know how to run a paper, and so they thought they did have to, like, annotate everything, and there was this <laughs> long, like, 50-page footnote section and with a bibliography? <laughs> I did at one point start to write a comedy sketch about a guy whose job it was to write newspaper headlines, and his boss keeps trying to explain that it undermines the credibility of the newspaper that he ends every headline with the word HONEST! I think that, that would be maybe the kind of thing they would go for at the Herald. Mm -hmm. I know. That's like if you immediately want to establish mistrust with somebody, that's what you do. 
One interesting note, too, we had speculated that perhaps the whole reason for the previous Asgardian storyline was to get Valkyrie back in her old outfit, mm-hmm. but now we see that she is in her new outfit, mm-hmm. not her new old outfit, which was kind of a nice surprise, and I wonder if that is going to be a permanent thing. Yeah, I was relieved that the whole Asgard storyline wasn't just an elaborate excuse to get her back in the old getup. Yeah, it, I mean, it makes sense that she would be in her newer outfit, because we do have like the storyline explanation that it is a outfit that she now reverts to magically whenever she pulls out her sword, now that it's been recalibrated to do that by Clea. But I had assumed they were just going to hand wave that away once she changed into her old metal cone boob outfit. But I like her new outfit better. I don't know. I don't get the impression that it's very popular with fans, but I think it has a nice science fiction-y look to it that works for her character and also is less impractical. So it was nice to see that back. Yeah. And the impracticality, too, especially if she has to go anywhere cold, I would think having Ooh. those metal cones on your boobs would be a real drag. Yeah, she'd end up like that guy in the last New Teen Titans issue, nippleless. I, I think she would lose them to frostbite <laughs> almost immediately. There's, you're going to have such trouble fighting crime with, with that going on. I would imagine it would at least be in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Seems like it would be distracting. Mm-hmm. Did you get a chance to read the letters column in this one? I did not have access to the letters part in my copy. Ah, there is one that I found particularly interesting. We have mentioned before that Mary Jo Duffy was a frequent contributor to letters columns before she got hired at Marvel. Right. But we see a letter appears in this that is from another future hire at Marvel. Uh, There's a letter from Kurt Busiek who is a very prominent writer, still working at Marvel. Uh, He's the guy who did the very acclaimed, and rightly so, Marvel's miniseries. He also created the title Astro City for Image. Oh, I read that. That was great. Yeah. He's one of my favorite current writers, but he has a letter that is very critical of David Kraft's run on the series. Dear folks, the Dynamic Defenders ain't dynamic no more. Fact is, they're downright dull. To illustrate, dull writing. David Kraft has nice ideas, but the only good issues of Defenders under him have been the Scorpio and the Power Principle. These were very preachy, power-corrupt stories, and they were handled well. But the non-preachy stories have been miserable. The documentary disaster was a fantastic idea, but all it did was show that Kraft can only write one character. That surly, uncommunicative, funny fellow that Nighthawk seems to be these days. But everybody in the disaster acted like variations on Nighthawk, even to the point of horrible out-of-characteredness and simple non-heroicness. Plus, the plot was boring and scripted to match. The return of Millie the Model and the battle with the Glop this ish would have been great low-key in-between issue stuff, except that every single issue of the Defenders is like this. Dull. He goes on to say that the art is dull as well, uh, and he says that the Defenders need a totally new creative team, and maybe it can use a concept it's never in its 65-issue history used, an actual non-team. If there's a writer at Marvel who knows what a non-team is, get him on the Defenders, please. Dang. 
Scathing. Really scathing. And I don't think he's that wrong on some of it. I think his criticisms of the art are off, uh, especially when he's criticizing the Don Perlin and Sal Buscema issues, uh, because I thought the art in those was great. But it is odd to see him be so undiplomatic in his criticism, especially when you look at a few short years later, these people are going to be his peers and his co-workers. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that would be a little bit awkward to have to work with the people you would criticize so publicly. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if he worked directly with them, but I know that Kraft did come back to the company and I think they were working there at the same time and Busema was there forever. I'm, I'd be, honestly, it would be more surprising if they hadn't worked together than if they had. But uh, yeah, I thought that was just kind of interesting to note. Indeed. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get to the minutiae? Uh, let's see, eccentric old ladies, Val has a big head. Oh, just the opening bit there with the footprints in the sand. I was wondering if Doctor Strange was going to take that in a little bit of a Christian direction for a minute. But... <laughs> well, there were only one set of footprints. That was when I used my magical cloak to levitate you. Yeah, I thought he was going to do some good talking down to Kyle. <laughs> But yeah, that um, that footprints in the sand page is is really pretty cool because you've got Omegatron's giant decapitated head and, and body in the background, and the clouds look all billowy and almost psychedelic. Yeah, I was paying a little bit more attention to the fact that the giant Omegatron head sitting on the beach put me in a very Planet of the Apes frame of mind. But you're right, the sky is very trippy looking. I mean, maybe they are under the mystic tarp that Steve set up. Man, that is some lazy heroing from the Sorcerer Supreme, I gotta say. Yeah, I think that is characteristic laziness for Steve, though, in terms of that. He's like, well, I'm not interested in this anymore. I assume it will be fine. Under the tarp you go. <laughs> yeah, very likely. Uh, let's move on to the minutia, shall we? Let's. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you want to start off with? Well, I guess we were just talking about the, the panels and the artwork, so why don't we jump in with our uh, favorite panels? Okay, Cory, what was your favorite panel in this issue? So I did like that opening one that I mentioned where Steve and Kyle are walking along the beach together. It's nicely framed. It's a good way to bring you into the story with Omegatron and everything. Mm -hmm. But I think for my favorite, I'm going to go with one that struck me a little more comical, and that's on page 17. I called it Two Men in a Boat, <laughs> and... It starts with Hellcat saying, Looky, Val, he beat up two man and a boat all by himself, referring to Tennis Man. Yeah, I like the idea, too, that beating up two men all by himself is certainly not to the superhero community the sort of thing that would seem like it would be all that impressive. And beating up a boat is just a funny thing to do. Yeah, and the way that the Defenders are approaching, too, they're all kind of like in a line, and Hulk is first, and he's on the down part of his giant jump. And uh, I don't know, it's just got this, yeah, goofy, kind of almost, like you said, Silver Age feel to it. Yeah, and uh, 
Topspin looks like he is posing triumphantly and possibly peeing on the vanquished boat that he has just conquered. <laughs> Hands on hips, very pelvis forward <laughs> posture. Yeah, I mean, thankfully he has his back to the camera, but still. Yeah, it's possible. I also had a panel that I found amusing as my favorite panel. I will say, in general, the art in this I really do like. I really enjoy Herb Trempe's art. I like the way he draws Hillary in this. Uh, there's a really nice panel of her on page 14. But I think my favorite panel is on the following page. And it's the one where we are reintroduced to the gang of New Hampshire gangsters. It is on the top of page 15. And specifically, there is one of the gangster guys who looks like he is frantically patting his pockets. I assume he has forgotten his gun. <laughs> sure, buddy. Look. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, jeez. Not again. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I can see that. He's got the little, like, motion lines all around his shoulders. He's patting his chest. Yeah. I also like the idea that he would keep his gun in his breast pocket. Probably fell out when he was tying his shoes or something. I would imagine so. He, he's new to this gangster business. And actually, that panel segues nicely into Sartorially Speaking. Sartorially Speaking... Which elements of fashion in this issue do you feel are most worthy of note? Yeah, there was two areas I focused on. One was the uh, the New Hampshire gangsters and then the tennis get-ups. In particular, on page seven, Merle's magenta suit. We mentioned earlier he's wearing his shades indoors and has a little, like, a, I don't know if it's a pork pie or a, a tiny fedora hat. But he's definitely got that, like, old-timey mobster sort of look going on. Mm -hmm. As does his compatriot, who is wearing the full double-breasted pinstripe suit and has the flat-top haircut. Yeah, so I thought that was a good look, but I think my favorite is the tennis outfit that Hillary never changes out of, which is, I guess it's a peach-colored top and a matching headband. Yeah, it's what I think of as being a very 80s look, so a little bit ahead of its time here. But yeah, she looks like a very almost stereotypical mid-80s aerobics instructor. Yeah, she's got the wristbands, too, and the tennis skirt. And yeah, as I mentioned, the New Hampshire gangsters on page 15, they all look like they're doing their best to look like various types of gangsters. The guy who forgot his gun is perhaps the least dressed up of them. He is wearing a yellow baseball hat and a white button-down shirt with a leather jacket. In the background, we see a man with a pretty decent afro going for himself, wearing a lime green leisure suit. Nice big lapels. Mm-hmm. We have the leader of this crew, the one who carries a tackle box full of wrenches to do his safe cracking, uh, is wearing a three-piece brown striped suit. And there's a guy lurking over his shoulder who looks like he is maybe the Hulk in disguise. He's very, very bulky, but he's also wearing a purple trench coat with a green ascot and a pork pie hat. Yeah, he looks cool. It's like they all raided a costume department for their gangster outfits and had slightly different ideas of what the job description was. There was this resale shop downtown Dover by the river that uh, had a lot of stuff like that. I wonder if they knocked that place over first to get their duds. I bet they did. Or maybe that's where their day jobs are. <laughs> 
<laughs> Especially is Marty. Is is Marty the name of the dude with the glasses and the pinstripe suit, I think? I believe so. Yeah. Marty totally looks like he works there selling vintage <laughs> suits, mustache wax. Right. To people who would be performing uh, across the river at Prescott Park for the summer festivals. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know what? Speaking of Dover, let's get into our next category. Behold or be gone. Now, we see in this issue, at the conclusion, Jeff, or Topspin, or anything man. Tennis man. Tennis man. Is offered the possibility to have nigh-omnipotent powers of strength and speed and invulnerability if he wants to stay secluded on this island. So my question to you, Corey... If you had the opportunity to have Tennis Man's powers, but you had to dress like Tennis Man, and you could never leave Dover, New Hampshire, behold or be gone. Oh man. Well, I I'm gonna I'm gonna have to be gone because I got the travel bug too much and I can't apparently keep my hands off of the wrong flasks or codexes <laughs> or whatever and keep winding up in these weird pocket dimensions and alternate earths and asgardian realms so as much as i would like uh to be able to stop a car from running me down and all that stuff i'm i'm gonna have to be gone and also despite my love for dover it is a really a really cool town but uh i i don't think i could spend the rest of my life in one place without being able to move around yeah I think I would also have to give it a be gone, although it is very tempting. I also really liked Dover, New Hampshire. That's where uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were created, too. Eastman and Laird's old stomping grounds. Yeah, I really like the town. I certainly would like to have nigh-omnipotent powers. And I'm realizing more and more stuff can be done remotely. So you can still have, like, a social network of friends going that you can maintain electronically and stuff but man it comes down to a couple of things for me first of all those new hampshire winters are rough and that tennis outfit is gonna get chilly in the winter oh good point those are short shorts they really are overall i think it's a pretty decent look but uh yeah in the winter it would be a little bit much and also knowing that i was so tantalizingly close to being able to go to the fox run mall or Prescott Park. <laughs> or Jokins. Or Jokins. And just being like, oh, it's so close, but so far away. I mean, sure, there's a friendlies here, but it's not the same. Oh, man. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, I've got to give it a be gone. Although, as I said, very tempting. Couldn't get up to the Kittry Trading Post or drive over to Maine oh. to buy beer after New Hampshire stopped selling it. Like, there's all oh. kinds of limitations. I know, you couldn't go up to Ordeoin Point and enjoy the tide pools? You couldn't head over to Squam Lake Science Center? You couldn't go to any of the places I like to go on field trips as a kid. <laughs> no uh, no checking out the bullet holes in the walls at Fort Foster? Oh, man. I'm sorry, Fort Foster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it would just be too tempting. I would end up straying from those stomping grounds and probably destroying the world. Oh, wow. So it's two begones. Indeed. Be gone! Fair enough. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? Ooh, this book was pretty rich with sound effects. 
Gosh, I did have a bit of a toss-up um, between three, actually. But I think despite how I really hate that there was some uh, some horse abuse in the poor Aragorn, I gotta say, man. this He has been having a rough time of it lately. He really has. And that continues here on page 26 when um, we get a frap, which is the, <laughs> the noise it makes when he runs full tilt into a force field. And <laughs> ween, which I think is the noise that he makes because it hurts. Oh, I didn't see that as him running into a force field. Wasn't that Tennis Man punching Aragorn? You could probably read it either way. There's the motion line of him backhanding the horse with his cudgel. So I'm pretty sure frap is the noise it makes when a nigh-omnipotent superhero punches a horse with a stick. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I mean, to be fair, frap is the noise it makes when a nigh-omnipotent superhero punches a horse with a stick in most of New England. In the rest of the country, I think that noise would be a milkshake. It'd be a shake. Yeah. <laughs> and in uh, Rhode Island, for some reason, it would be a cabinet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless you're at a Starbucks, then it would be a Frappuccino. <laughs> that poor horse. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. It is the horse getting clocked with the stick. I do prefer to think of it as, like, when you see a large man walk into a plate glass thing not knowing it's there like that's the sort of image of what i got for aragorn because it does look like he's you know face first into a plate glass thing but you're right he's getting socked by a tennis man yeah poor fella it's an odd clunky bit of pacing in terms of the artwork because tennis man has just been fighting valkyrie and then suddenly where Valkyrie was, Aragorn is, and he exclaims his surprise that Aragorn's there instead of Valkyrie, much like I think we the readers are just like, wait, what? Because yeah, when Aragorn shows up, he's like, now I, hey, wait, where did that horse come from? And I was kind of thinking the same thing right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he's a real external processor. Top spin is. Yeah, I think I have the same favorite sound effect as you. I gotta go with Frap, although I also did really like that when Jeff got hit by the gangster's car, it made the noise brash, because I like to think that, yeah, that is a very brash move, running over a tennis man. <laughs> yep, I, I had that jotted down as well. As a further backup, I had when he gets shot by everybody on page 15, I just sort of also thought it was funny that his reaction is throw his hands up and say, don't! <laughs> Yeah, the trio of gunfire noises was pretty great there, too. Mm -hmm. We had a scam, which I don't know if I've heard a gun make a scam sound before. I don't think I have either. Yep, a scam, a brack, and a brom. Those are some pretty great gun noises. We were alluding earlier to the fact that milkshakes in much of New England are called fraps, and that was certainly what I grew up thinking they were called. The etymology of that, I believe, is the fact that blenders had a setting on them that was frappe. F-R-A-P-P-E, and that in New England, the way you would pronounce that word would just be frap. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we got a real good phonetic take on uh, French and other non-English languages <laughs> back there. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? Yeah, I usually turn to the more flowery exposition or... Steve Strange's flowery language, but instead I went more so with the humor and the tennis man 
Patsy banter we saw on page 23 when they're having their scuffle. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It's going to sound funny if I read it. Do you want to I'll be Tennis Man and you be Patsy? Sure. Ha! You'll have to be faster than that to beat me. I'm as quick as a cat. Remember? And you just ran into a cat who's quicker. Yikes. Bad kitty. You almost got me that time. Not quite fast enough, Hellcat. Now I have got you. Well, don't ruffle my fur, or you'll find out you've got a tiger by the tail. Oomph. And then she gets knocked out. After she did is one of my favorite pieces of dialogue, just for how over the top it is. Nighthawk says, good going, Colt. You just beat up a girl who was trying to reason with you. Are you proud of yourself? And he just screams, yes, and then punches Kyle out. (laughs) Yeah. My other favorite piece of dialogue we've already talked about in your favorite panel, which was the Lucky Val, he beat up two men and a boat all by himself. (laughs) Yeah, pretty good. This category was actually a little bit tricky for me, narrowing it down to just one. But in every issue of a Defenders comic, there is at least one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they've just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? Yeah, I know what you mean. I chose Nighthawk for having a plan, which is not out of character for him because he usually assumes leadership, but for having coming up with a plan and having it be one that works, for having the awareness to basically figure out what was going on and know why it would work. And then also for the self-sacrifice, where he knew he would just basically have to get beat up and have his ass handed to him to save the world, and he did it anyway. Yeah, I had similar thoughts on Kyle in this issue. I thought he did a really good job, which was certainly out of character for him. And yeah, for all the reasons you said, he was one of my choices as well. I also felt that the Hulk was acting very out of character in that he was spoiling for a fight and really wanted to smash something during his calmer moments. We've seen before that's not generally the Hulk's thing. He wants to be left alone, first and foremost, and when he is not left alone, then he wants to smash. For him to just be like, you told me I could smash something if I showed up here, and I love smashing... That's not the version of the Hulk that generally shows up in the Defenders. Uh, And I thought that was pretty out of character. Also, Steve was pretty out of character in a few ways. We talked about before him acknowledging that he doesn't really know what to do in a situation is not particularly generally his thing. But more than that, unfortunately, Steve is not a guy who in the past has been particularly worried about consent. And we see that he has the power to take away Tennis Man's powers at any point and waits to do it until Tennis Man agrees that it's okay with him. That doesn't seem very Steve to me. Yeah, and and not just the consent piece, but the the consequences piece, right? Like, he gives the reason for not doing it as, oh, I didn't know what would happen. I was nervous. Right. I mean, maybe he's learned his lesson from the whole Barbara Norris situation, but it seems like he is now off of that one scot-free now that she's turned evil. So, I don't know. That seemed pretty out of character to me, so that's why I had Steve as my sucker. Yeah, solid choice. And perhaps related to this category. In every issue of a Defenders comic, there is a best defender and a worst offender. 
In this issue, who is your best defender and who is your worst offender? Well, I guess keeping with the uh, the Steve and Kyle show, I had the rare opportunity, I suppose, to nominate Nighthawk for best defender, pretty much for the exact same reasons as uh, he got the uh, soccer category for me. Yeah, agreed. Uh, competent nonviolence, not generally his thing, but he did that this time, did a great job of it. Yeah, in my notes uh, for best defender, I wrote down, Kyle? Shit, it's Kyle. <laughs> I know, it felt really pretty <laughs> weird. It does, but you know what? It feels good. So, uh, you know, maybe keep these opportunities coming, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Conversely, I had uh, Steve as being the worst offender. Yep. Leaving the wreckage of the Omegatron intact under a magic tarp because you don't want to think about it right now. It's a bad look, buddy. I had almost the exact same thing (laughs) written down (laughs) in my notes. So Weird. We have an accord. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Also, the fact that he invoked Satanish at the end to take away Tennis Man's powers. That guy's not your buddy. Yeah, I have a memory of that name showing up before, but when I first read it, I was like, wow, he didn't really want to commit to the whole thing, so he was just like, ish, on the end. Yeah, I think Satanish was the guy who the people in the Himalayas that were evil were worshipping, and he's, yeah, he's a pretty standard Marvel fill-in for Satan, that, you know, he's Satanish, Satan-esque, but not really Satan. But either way, that's not a guy you should be invoking when you're trying to save the world. Mm, Good point. You stick to the hoary hosts of Hogoth that you're used to. Yeah. Don't go chasing Satan-ish. So yeah, I also had Steve as my choice for worst offender. And really, those were the two clear frontrunners for both of those categories. Didn't really have any strong backups in this. Yeah, not really. I mean, if I had to make a big stretch, I guess I could put Val into the worst, not worst, but to like did less of a good job than she normally does category because she saw this guy as beating everybody else up and then wound up getting Aragorn hit with a stick. But that's kind of a stretch. Yeah, and I think she was already beat up by the time that Aragorn entered the fray. So I think she may have been trying to keep him out of it. Until then, anyway. Honestly, for the most part, this is a Tennis Man issue that guest stars the Defenders. It's really his story more than theirs, so it's not like there's a ton of story that the Defenders are in to choose from. Mm -hmm. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, the Hulk's rules in this issue, as I read them, is that the way we treat animals says a lot about us as a, a species, as, as a society, as a person. And the bottom line is protect the winged horses, damn it. Mm. That was his last straw. He was being a, a good Hulk, although a bit of a sucker, in that they told him to turn around and not watch the fighting. <laughs> And so he did, like a good Hulk. But then as soon as Aragorn got hit with that stick, man, he lost it. Yeah, I wonder to what extent him feeling guilt over throwing a rock at Aragorn last issue played into that. Ooh, Yeah, I don't know. I I think the Hulk has a a childlike ability to let stuff like that go. Yeah, he's big on living in the present. You're right. Very Zen-like in a lot of ways. Yeah, threw rock at horse, but that was yesterday, right? (laughs) Today is a new day. 
Yeah, especially weird that Jeff, as a veterinarian, would punch out a horse. And my The Hulk's Rule is also related to that incident. I had The Hulk's Rule being, just because something is funny in a movie doesn't mean it will be in real life. Because the Hulk has seen Blazing Saddles, and when Mongo, <laughs> as played by Alex Karras, punches out a horse for no particular reason, that's really funny. But when you see it actually done in real life, that's just horrible animal abuse, and it's mm. really disturbing. And so, yeah, from that, the Hulk was able to extrapolate that just because something is funny in a movie doesn't mean it will be funny in real life. That's a good point. I think it's a valuable lesson we could all stand to learn. I, for one, have resolved to stop throwing banana peels under people's feet. Have you ever actually slipped on one? I think I actually have. I have too, and I was somebody posted about that on social media the other day too of having that. I feel like that is a much more common thing than <laughs> we're led to believe by the comedy Cer establishment. Certain tropes exist for a reason. But a good resolution, nonetheless, for the public safety. Right. This is a topic that has come up in the podcast before. Like, the idea of having chairs pulled out on people as a prank. Like, that's the sort of thing that could really result in serious injury. And, yeah, horse punching. Just not worth it. No horse punching, chair pulling, or banana peel hefting allowed. Or hitting people over the head with a frying pan. Or punching your brother in the back. <laughs> or putting your brother in a drawer. Ah, oh, shit. Okay, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, Corey, you came up with a number of alternate titles for this next category. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. I got a little carried away. Yeah, it's a little bit later where you are than where it is here. So that was how I was woken up this morning. <laughs> was with a, a series of text messages from my good for many things brother here suggesting wonging for vengeance, wonging for justice, wonging for pancakes, wongly accused, hits from the wong, the wong show, Cheech and Wong. Yeah, I was on a little roll. You were indeed. So let's write some wongs here. In the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, March, what was happening on the Wong Show? <laughs> yeah, funny you should ask. Um, so, among his many hobbies and talents, one of the things Wong enjoys is a good game of uh, pickup basketball. So he was out at the court and was having a really good competitive game, kind of a hard match with some of the guys from the neighborhood. He started feeling not so good. And you know how you get those colds sometimes that come on and just hit you like a ton of bricks? Mm-hmm. It was one of those. So he had to leave the game and, you know, tried to hydrate himself and defeat feeling better. But it's just like, oh, man, I need to go home and just get some rest. He didn't even make it to his room. He just made it to the couch and then basically passed out on the couch and uh, had a high fever and, you know, sweating and all of that, and started having some of those really intense fever dreams. And so he had been watching a, a documentary about those, you know, those those horrible birds? We've talked about them before. I think they're from New Zealand, and they look like parrots, but they eat the fat that surround the kidneys from the back of sheep. 
Yeah, the uh, terror nightmare parrots of New Zealand mm-hmm. have definitely come up before. Okay, so he was watching a documentary about those, and so he was just having this fever dream about these horrible giant birds, and he was trying to like blast them away with like fireballs or lightning bolts, but his his magic was all wackadoodle. And so Steve comes in and sees Wong uh, with like a you know headband and wristbands and basketball shoes and you know, short shorts and everything because it was the 70s. Like, basically his whole, like, basketball get-up. The basketball's on the floor, water bottles been knocked over, and Wong's kind of rolling around on the couch all sweaty and moaning things about magic birds, magic birds, magic birds. And um, before he had passed out, he had turned on the TV to watch the game, the college game between uh, Indiana State and Michigan State, which was going on. Oh, this was the uh, finals of the NCAA tournament, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so that was when actually Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were still in college and were the respective, you know, leads of their school's teams. So Strange, you know, looks back and forth and was like, oh, clearly Wong, you know, he's he's gone into a, a trance state trying to get the outcome of the game. And based on what I'm hearing, he doesn't want the bird to win. So he gave a little extra mojo, and um, yep, sure enough, there was an 11-point victory, Michigan over Indiana State, and uh, that resolved that game in the championship. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to take anything away from Irvin Johnson, he's, he's an amazing athlete, but, you know, strange, stranger things have happened. Well, that was one hit from the Wong, if you will. <laughs> But one of the other things that Wong was up to was taking a pretty severe ribbing from Steve Strange. You know, maybe Steve was trying to make up for this when he decided to affect the outcome of that game for Wong, but he had been riding Wong pretty hard lately. You see, there was a movie coming out called Hair, and Wong was kind of excited about seeing this movie. He had liked the theatrical production of it which Steve found hilarious because Wong doesn't have any hair. So he just kept teasing Wong about it and putting posters for the upcoming movie in his room and being like, hair, get it, Wong, like you don't have. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Steve, I am the living end. And Wong took it pretty well, but eventually he had just had enough. And he was like, man, I just really need to blow off some steam. So he talked to Patsy, and he remembered that she had been training on the moons of Saturn in her weird kung fu psychic shit. And he was like, man, is there anywhere around there where I could just go to blow off some steam and make and nobody will get hurt? Because I have had it up to here with this shit. And she's like, well, not really on any of the moons of Saturn. They're all pretty well inhabited by titans and stuff and you really don't want to hang out there but over on jupiter there's really nothing going on so wong teleported himself to io the moon of jupiter and just blew off some steam and just started really just wreaking havoc really unleashed his magical powers and that ended up causing some volcanoes erupting which was the first evidence of volcanic activity on a extraterrestrial planet noted by human instruments. It was just while blowing off some steam. And later on in the month, on March 14th, after that, he felt much calmer, and he and Steve actually went and saw the movie Hair. And they had a pretty good time, and after that, 
Steve stopped teasing Wong, and they both decided that Treat Williams was a star on the rise. <laughs> wow. Do you disagree? <laughs> uh, th- no, just wow in general. That's a, what a month. Yeah, busy. A lot going on in the sanctum that month. Mm-hmm. And that was the Wong that needed writing in March of 1979. Gosh, he has contributed so much to this scientific lexicon. And the world of arts, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess he didn't have anything to do with the making of hair. I think if he had, it would have been a little bit closer to the Broadway cast recording, the movie soundtrack. But, uh, you know, still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey, from your vacation on Earth 69. <laughs> so dumb. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us as well. If you would like to get into touch with us, there are a myriad of ways that you can do so. You could take the route that our friend Bryant did and contact us via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook and Instagram. Really, every nook and cranny of the internet that you can imagine. So, uh, yeah, why not hit us up in one of those venues? Well, you're on the internet. Why not leave us a review? I think that's a nice thing that you can do. We've gotten some lovely ones lately, and uh, we, w- we would love to, uh, to read a lovely one from you as well. Just go into whatever application you're using to listen to the show right now and hit the button that says, leave a review. There's probably one of those. And then say, Hub and Corey are nice human men from Earth who are definitely human, despite Bryant's suspicions otherwise. Five stars. It's as simple as that. Or you could just put the first part and the last part there. Uh... I already forgot the thing I just said. What's the first part and last part? Hub and Corey, five stars. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Concise, and it removes any of the tension between overstating human men from Earth and not saying anything at all. Good point. If you would like to support the show financially, I would certainly appreciate that. You can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do donate, you get access to a ton of bonus material, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's the Howard the Duck podcast that Lisa and I record every month. But you'll also get access to a bunch of other bonus stuff. There's some bonus episodes that Corey and I have recorded. I've also been making a bunch of brief videos where I talk about classic comics, and I started a recent series of those where I talk about newer comics that I've been reading, because we got some questions about that. Uh, So if you'd like to see any of that, you can visit us on Patreon, but mostly it's a way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to keep doing it, and I I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. And I think that's... uh... Oh wait, we have a a word from our sponsors. We do? Yokens. We'll say nice things about you if you give us money. Their fried food is fried. It's so fried, and it's probably food. If you want our praise to be more effusive than that, you know where to reach us, Yokens. Keep those checks a-coming. 
You got giant, potentially animatronic sign money, but you ain't got money to kick down to your old pals, Corey and Hub? Come on, Yokins. You're better than that. Thar she blows. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You know that Dover is the fastest growing city in New Hampshire. To accommodate our growth, we offer several parking lots around the downtown district to make visitors to your favorite destination easy. Come enjoy all of what Dover has to offer. From dozens of restaurants and retail shops to our famed Children's Museum and Dover Ice Arena. Whatever your destination is in downtown Dover, we want you to get to it. Get to your life. Get to your Dover. Although if you are planning a trip to Dover, New Hampshire, it is worth noting that the Friendlies there closed a couple years ago.